I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mark Kleiman. Mark Kleiman is a professor of public policy in the UCLA School of Public Affairs. He is most recently the author of When Brute Force Fails, How to Have Less Crime and Less Punishment. Before coming to UCLA in 1995, Mr. Kleiman taught at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and at the University of Rochester. He has also worked with the US Department of Justice and the city of Boston. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Mark Kleiman. Thanks very much for that kind introduction, and uh, thanks, thanks to all of you for coming out uh, on, a, on a pleasant night, being, uh, being indoors rather than outdoors. Um, I'll try to make it not too painful. Um, so my topic is crime and punishment, um, and my claims are simple. We have too much crime, we have too much punishment, and particularly we have too many people behind bars, um, and we could and should uh, and can have less of both. Um, so let's see if in the next 30 minutes or so I can, I can make out that claim. The title of the book is drawn from a saying among engineers. When brute force fails, you're not using enough. Sometimes rendered as when brute force fails, get a bigger hammer. That has been the slogan of our criminal justice system uh, for roughly the last 40 years um, and uh, 35 years. And we're at the limits of what can be done by brute force. So I'm here to suggest that we might do something else. So, too much crime. Well, we have half as much crime as we had 15 years ago. That's good. Uh, that leaves us with only two and a half times as much crime as we had between 1950 and 1962. Unlike most of the people in this room, um, I'm old enough to remember when a perfectly ordinary middle-class 13-year-old could come back from Memorial Stadium in Baltimore changing buses in a tough part of town to come back from a baseball game, and neither his parents nor anybody else thought twice about it. I don't think many 13-year-olds have that privilege today. Um, so I want to claim that we're less free as a country than we used to be. Uh, I sometimes criticize my liberal friends, sorry, sometimes criticize, criticize my conservative and libertarian friends for forgetting that it's possible for private as well as public action to represent a threat to liberty. That sometimes in order to preserve liberty, you need effective government intervention. Well, my liberal friends seem to sometimes forget that when we talk about crime. It's not only the criminal justice system, it's not only the police officer and the jailer that deprive people of liberty, it's the criminal that leaves people inside their apartments afraid to go out. So, too much crime. We have half, five times the homicide rate in the United States of any country with which we'd like to compare ourselves. Any place in Europe, uh, Canada, Japan. There are neighborhoods in this city, and every major city, where the leading cause of death for men between the ages of 15 and 30 is homicide. So, yeah, crime's down, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't relax. And it's, as was the introducer said, very, very badly concentrated by both race and class. Neither alone really accounts for the difference. The concentration of crime, particularly in poor black neighborhoods, defines those neighborhoods and defines life in those neighborhoods uh, in a way that we shouldn't, shouldn't tolerate. And the crime rate we have today is in the face of the fact that people are doing lots of things 
to avoid being victimized. Um, most of the costs of crime are not inflicted on the people who are actually victimized. Most of the costs of crime consist of what people do to avoid being victimized, starting with moving to the suburbs. A lot of discussion about the contribution of suburban sprawl to our carbon footprint and the need to reconcentrate population in order to reduce the amount of time people spend in their cars. Very good ideas. Very rarely does that conversation ever mention the reason people move to the burbs in the first place, which is that if we can't make the city safe, people won't move back to them if they've got a choice. Well, what we've had is a long period where anybody who can has fled the high-crime neighborhoods, leaving increasing amounts of social distress behind them. All right, so that's the crime problem. I assume I don't have to say much more about crime being a bad thing and our having too much of it. Though you will sometimes hear people who are very concerned about the incarceration rate uh, tell you that, oh, crime's not a big problem. It's just the TV news. If it, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, crime's not so bad. Well, not the way it seems to me. And now the incarceration side. Right now, there are, in this land of the free, 2.4 million people behind bars. 1% of the adult population. I'm pleased to say that my friends at the Pew Charitable Trusts have managed to make that 1 in 100 number a well-known number. Started to put the problem of mass incarceration as an independent social problem on the map. Historically, I've talked about crime and what to do about crime. And one of the things you do about crime is you've got prisons. Well, but we're now at the point where the prisons themselves are a major social problem, comparable to crime. I have to confession to make. Back in 1979, I did some calculations uh, when I was working for the Justice Department and started to argue that we didn't have enough prisons in this country. Uh, that was a reasonable thing to think, I want to claim, back then. We had been debuilding prison capacity in the face of a crime wave so that the punishment to offense ratio in 1979 was about one-sixth of what it had been in 1960. Right, well, look, we've got a self-feeding crime wave here. The more crime goes up with a limited prison capacity, the less danger it is to be a criminal, and therefore people do it. I mean, some of you may know a book by James Q. Wilson called Thinking About Crime, which makes this argument. Basically said, look, people do a lot of crime because crime pays. We want them to do less crime. We've got to make crime not pay. So, along with some others, I argued that we needed to start building prisons. And with no causal link that I can tell to anything I said or did, we did, in start building prisons, did indeed start building prisons. And then when we built some prisons, we built some more prisons. And then when we built those prisons, we built some more prisons. And at some point, and I'm not alone here, I started to feel like the sorcerer's apprentice. Wait a second, does this thing have an off switch? So we've now completely reversed the situation. We had a, a substantial decline in crime, and we're still putting people behind bars, right? The prison population in the U.S. grew 3% last year. Now, this year, in the face of fiscal crisis, states are getting a little bit more serious. But I don't think we've, by any means, broken the long-term trend. Um, California still has in prisons on its capital budget. So the prison problem is a terrible problem. I won't go into all the horrible things about American prisons. During the controversy about what was going on at Abu Ghraib and at Guantanamo, a number of defenders of the torture regime said, well, those conditions are really no worse 
than Americans incur in state prisons. Um, I'm glad to say that that wasn't true, but I'm sorry to say that it was a hell of a lot more true than I'd like it to be. Almost every big state in this country has a supermax facility. These are places where the prisoners are confined 23 hours a day, where they never, literally never see the face of another human being because the guards and other visitors all wear hockey masks. If they want to talk to a psychologist, the psychologist stands outside the cell and shouts through the door so everybody else can hear. We hanged people after World War II for doing stuff that was less bad than that. Uh, I claim that the Supermax facility is a crime against humanity. And we're putting a lot of people through this. Again, heavily concentrated by race and class. A black man who drops out of high school is a better than even chance of doing prison time. Sometime in his lifetime. A better than even chance. Somebody did a calculation, which I wish I'd done. If you take the African-American population in the United States and divide it into the number of prisoners who are African-American, you get a higher ratio of prisoners to population than the Soviet Union had in 1953. Um, we have indeed built an American gulag, not, as sometimes said, of political prisoners, but still we have an enormous prison population and an enormous jail population. And since here we are at the California Endowment, I might as well mention the damage that does to public health. The jails in particular are incubators for infectious disease. And they're a great opportunity. And if you wanted to deal with infectious disease problems in the US, there's no better place to go than the jails. The population that's sick comes through the jails. But in fact, we don't check them on the way in and we don't check them on the way out. And they bring disease back to everybody else. So what to do? Well, we could get tough on crime, but we've already gotten tough on crime. The calculation I did in 1979 suggested that, on average, committing a burglary led to about six days behind bars. Uh, and I said, okay, now I understand why there's a lot of crime. That's not a very heavy penalty for breaking into somebody's house. The calculation I should have done but didn't do was to ask, okay, but what did the burglar get? Answer, oh, about $250. So even at six days, he was basically spending time behind the walls for about $40 a day. I doubt many people would take that bargain. Well, and since then, burglaries fell fallen in half. The number of burglars in prison has gone up by a factor of six. So people are currently spending time behind prison for burglary for about $8 a day. So crime already doesn't pay. It's not the case that people are making rational decisions to become criminals. Nobody would pick that deal. As somebody once said, the wages of sin are well below the lawful minimum. <laughs> it's now true, by the way, that crack dealers, who used to make reasonably good money back in the late 1980s, uh, crack dealers in Washington, D.C. were making about $30 an hour plus cocaine. Not on an intolerable way. Now they were running about one chance in three of going to prison, some substantial chance of getting shot, possibly killed, a risk of becoming cocaine addicted, wrecking the rest of their lives, but at least they were making reasonable money at the time. Uh, there's a wonderful paper by Venkatesh called Why Do Cocaine Dealers Live With Their Mothers? <laughs> Venkatesh actually got the books of a cocaine distribution organization in Chicago and discovered that the retail sellers 
were making literally less than the minimum wage. Um, nobody's got a good theory about why that's true. I have one that I'll offer. I don't know that it's true. Um, we put a lot of cocaine dealers in prison between 1985 and 2000. And they all came out. Um, my friend Jeremy Travis likes to remind people who think that prison is the solution to some problem. They all come back. Well, what is an, what is an ex-crack dealer who's been to prison going to do from there on out? He's not very likely to get a legitimate job. So we basically built an industrial reserve army of unemployed crack dealers, and they've bid the wages of crack dealing down. So the intensive drug law enforcement we did in the late 80s and through the 90s actually re results in lower cocaine prices today. Price of cocaine now, with 15 times as many cocaine dealers in prison as we had in 1980. The price of cocaine down, is down 90% from its 1980 level. Um, some, some other time we'll talk about the, the follies of the, the drug war and also of most of the solutions offered. So we're in a social trap. We have too much crime. We have too many people behind bars. And the question is, can we escape? In the abstract, the answer has to be, get more bang for our incarceration buck. Make every cell day count. That's the opposite of three strikes, which, as Phil Hyman says, turns prisons into retirement homes for ex-burglars. Right? We want to make every cell day count. And, if we can, we want to learn to punish people, to discourage them from doing whatever they did, and control their behavior so they don't do it again, without paying their room and board bill, without locking them up. So, I claim we can do that. So let's get back to this, this paradox of crime despite punishment. If crime doesn't pay, why do people do it? Answer, because random severity, which defines our criminal justice system, is no substitute for swift and consistent sanctioning. The criminal justice system has to learn what every mother already knows, whatever anybody who successfully trained a puppy already knows, that drastic punishments are of no use but swift and consistent punishments are. And in the context of the criminal justice system, swiftness and certainty are not consistent with severity. Severity is the enemy of swiftness and certainty because the more severe a punishment is, the fewer of them you can hand out because you've only got so many prison cells. Right? Every, every pizza thief doing 25 to life under three strikes, say he only does the 25 years. That's 50 people who can't do a six-month sentence to remind them not to steal cars. So swiftness, uh, severity is the enemy of swiftness and certainty because it chews up resources and also because it requires a lot of due process. You could put somebody in jail for a couple days pretty quickly. Right? There's not going to be a lot of resistance from the lawyer about that. If it's going to be years, and then you're going to have a trial in your hand. So we need to substitute swiftness for, for certainty. And, I would add, we need to substitute threats for actual punishments. Right? As my teacher Tom Schelling says, the perfect threat never needs to be carried out. Because if, if a threat actually convinces somebody not to do what you didn't want them to do, then you don't have to punish them for doing it. Right? So there's actually a community of interest between offenders and the rest of us. 
Right? Once we realize that arrest and prosecution and incarceration are costs and not benefits. The goal is not to lock up as many criminals as possible. The goal is to have as little crime as possible. Once we figure that out, then it makes sense to issue warnings. Right? Schoolyard cops and robbers is a zero-sum game. Somebody wins and somebody loses. The real game play, played between actual cops and actual robbers is not a zero-sum game. And therefore, it makes sense for the police and other parts of the criminal justice system to make very specific threats to very specific people about exactly what they're not supposed to do and exactly what's going to happen to them if they, if they keep doing it. And it turns out if you do that, you can make the threat do the work of the punishment. Sam Goldwyn is supposed to have said when somebody urged them to greenlight a movie because it sent a very powerful message, if you got a message, use Western Union. We don't use Western Union nearly enough in the criminal justice system. As the, as the good Lord said to Moses, don't just strike the rock, talk to the rock. So with all this abstraction, let me give you two examples of successful programs. Judge Stephen Ahm, who had been the U.S. attorney in Hawaii, got to be a state court judge, found, after he got to be a judge, that probation officers were coming to him with motions to revoke probation. Right? People had been put on probation for some felony they'd committed, were missing drug tests, or, not sh or either missing them or showing up and testing dirty, even though the drug test happened at a probation appointment that was scheduled a month in advance. All these people had to do was not use methamphetamine, which is the main drug in Hawaii, for three days before their probation meeting, and they could get away with it, but they didn't. 20% of the appointments, people showed up and were dirty. Another 10% they missed. Right? Per appointment. So when somebody had accumulated seven or eight or nine violations, the probation officer would finally bring the case to the judge, say, look, this guy's not getting the message. Send him to prison. And Judge Ahm said, okay, I, I see that. I see this guy isn't getting the message. But if this is his ninth violation, what happened the first eight times? Why are you only bringing me this case when it's hopeless? And the probation officer said, Judge, we've got caseloads of 180. Right? 30% of 180 is 54. That means every one of us would have to write up 54 revocation motions a month. There aren't that many hours in a day. And if we wrote them up, you couldn't hold all those hearings. So we jawbone the ones we can, and the ones that are hopeless we bring to you. And Judge Am said, uh, you wouldn't raise your kid that way. You wouldn't train a puppy that way. I want to hear about the first violation. And the probation officer said, uh, Your Honor, is there some part of impossible that you'd like us to explain more slowly? We can't do that. So Steve, who's, who's a much more reasonable guy than the average judge, said, okay, I hear you. We'll compromise. Make a list of the people who have fouled up so often that the next time you'd bring them to me for a revocation. That was 35 people. Called all of those 35 scofflaw probationers at an average of 14 prior arrests into his courtroom together for a new process he invented on the spot called a warning hearing. And at the warning hearing, he basically read them the riot act. He said, look, you're not doing your part. You're not. We want you to succeed on probation. 
but you're not keeping your half of the deal. Right? The probation deal is, we didn't send you to prison, you obey some rules, but you're not obeying those rules. So, from now on, you're going to call this phone number every morning, and I'm going to give you a color code, and if your color code comes up, you've got till 2 o'clock to show up for a drug test. And if you don't show up, we'll go chase you. And if you're dirty, you're going to jail. That night, right away. Well, here we have a hearing. But while you're waiting for the hearing, you're going to be waiting in a jail cell. And then he did some other good stuff. He sort of addressed them as adults and pointed out that they ought to take responsibility for their own lives and not sure what the, what the effective part of this was. What I am sure of is that of these 35 people who had a violation rate of 30% and who were now being tested at least six times a month, of those 35 people, fewer than half ever faced an actual sanction. For the rest, the threat, which was a very convincing threat, and he'd done the work of organizing the whole criminal justice system to deliver on it. He had the cops and the probation department and his staff and the jail and the drug treatment programs all ready to work together. But the threat, given that it was a real threat, turned out to be enough. So he managed to make the threat do the work of the actual punishment. And there's a long story about this. There are now 1,500 people on this program. And being on the program reduces your chances of going to prison by two-thirds. Reduces your chances of being arrested for a new crime by more than half. Costs about $1,400. Most of that goes for the drug treatment for people who fail two or three or four times. At that point, the judge says to them, um, think you need some help? You know, you say you're not addicted. You say you could quit, but you're not quitting. So now you've got a choice between a residential program and a prison cell. But that's about 8%. Because not only do fewer than half ever face a sanction, fewer than half of the people who get a first sanction ever get a second. And fewer than half of those ever get a third, and now you're down to a level where you can treat, as opposed to Prop 36 in California, where we have to assess and treat everybody, and therefore everybody gets crappy treatment. Right? Somebody who needs treatment under the Hawaii program, which is called HOPE, gets good treatment. Costs about $1,400 per probationer per year. That's about you know, on top of routine probation. So that's about two and a half times the cost of routine probation. It saves, in reduced incarceration, about $7,000 a year. So it more than pays for itself, even if you ignore the fact that you prevented crime, shrunk the drug market, and saved these people's lives. They're now no longer doing life in prison on the installment plan. These are people with an average of 14 prior arrests. So the dogma that says that drug users can't stop without treatment is just wrong. Sure they can. Or this is a remarkable form of drug treatment. So about five minutes, is that right? All right, so that's the probation version of this story. Now let me tell you the policing version of this story. This, this I owe to my friend David Kennedy. So High Point, North Carolina, is an old mill town in the Piedmont. 100,000 people, about 60% white, 40% black, was the home to a crack market. Actually, three areas of the city were open, flagrant crack markets, and had been for 20 years. And the cops arrested crack dealers. And every time they arrested one, a new one would show up, right? I mean, that's the frustration of drug law enforcement. Because it's a market, every time you arrest a dealer, you're making a niche for another dealer. 
And so cops are aware that this is futile and there's nothing they can do about it because the neighborhood's saying, why aren't you getting these dealers off our lawn? Right? And there's, a, of course, a racial angle to it. It was, the, it was the black neighborhoods of the city that had dealing. And so you had the black political and social leadership saying two things. One, why are you so intent on putting all of our sons and daughters in prison? And why are you tolerating crack dealing in our neighborhood? You wouldn't tolerate it in a white neighborhood. Right? And both complaints were valid. Both complaints were valid. And the cops couldn't stop, stop the enforcement because they couldn't seem to be indifferent to the dealing. And they also knew that the enforcement not only wasn't doing any good, but was actively doing harm by making sure that person after person after person in this neighborhood went to prison, and therefore somebody else got recruited into crack dealing. So it was, the, it was the trap that everybody's caught in. And finally, the police there were desperate enough to take truly off-the-wall advice. And so here's what they did. First, they did some community organizing. They went in and they talked to the neighborhood, the, the people of the West End, which their pin mapping had confirmed their impression was the hot area. Interesting. There was not very much crime right in the four-block area where the dealing went on. But that was the eye of the storm. Right around that area was a very high crime, both violence and property crime area. So they went into the neighborhood, sort of sat through, listened to a lot of, you know, the CIA invented crack because they hate black people stuff, um, got through that, and finally got the community leadership to agree that whatever the causes were, the actual crack dealing was actually a catastrophe for that neighborhood. And they were prepared to say that it had to stop. While this was going on, they talked to their informants and looked at their records and identified all of the drug dealers. Now, that seems like a huge task, right? If every time you get rid of one drug dealer, another appears, there must be an infinite number of them, right? Because that, that's the definition of infinity. You subtract one and the number's the same. Turns out, in this case, infinity was equal to 20. There were only 20 people who'd been dealing retail crack in that neighborhood in the previous year, and four of them had already left. So there were only 16 dealers. And they went in, and they did what cops do. They made buys and captured the stuff on videotape. They made buys from all 16 of the dealers. So when they had their case ready, they called a meeting. They sent a team consisting of a cop and a community leader around to the houses of the 16 dealers, actually 13 of the 16 dealers. Three of the dealers were really bad guys. They'd shot people, even if you couldn't prove that. So it was worthwhile to just put them away. The other 13 were just dealers. So then they visited, and, you know, as Venkatesh said, they were mostly living with their mothers. And they tried to do the, the visit for when mom would be home. And the message they delivered was, very important that you come to police headquarters tomorrow night. There's a meeting. Got to come. You will not be arrested. But it's very important that you be there. Oh, and Mrs. Jones, if you'd like to come, that would be wonderful. So the next night, 11 of the 13 dealers showed up, some with their mothers. Um, and the first thing the police chief did was, well, first thing that happened was that one of the local ministers made a speech. They said, you're our kids, and we love you, and you've got to stop this. You're wrecking this neighborhood. The dealing's got to stop. And the whole community is behind that. Next up was the police chief, who showed a videotape, 
which was a video montage of all the buys. And he said, when you see yourself committing a felony, raise your hand. <laughs> he also gestured over to the wall and said, there's a, there's a rack of ring binders over on that wall. One of them has your name on the spine. Why don't you get it? It's got the felony case against you. Right down to the judge's order for your arrest, waiting for the judge's signature. So why don't you get that notebook as you watch the videotape? And you'll notice that there are three empty chairs here with the names of three people on them. Those were the, the real bad guys. I hope you said goodbye to them. Because we're taking those cases federally. You're not going to see them for five years. There are times when that crack mandatory actually does some good. So, now that he had everybody's undivided attention, he said, okay, here's the message. The market is closed. There is no crack dealing in the West End as of tomorrow morning. And you're not dealing anywhere. And we don't have to buy from you again. We already bought from you. We already have you on tape. If we smell that you're dealing, you're going away. Well, who in his right mind would show up to deal after that speech? And in fact, nobody did. Oh, well, one, of the, one of the dealers got up and started sort of ranting about the racist cops and so on and so on. And his mother told him to sit down and shut up. So that was, that was helpful. Um, so the next morning, there were no dealers in the West End of High Point for the first time in 20 years. And the next day, some Weisenheimer said, oh, this is great. Got all these buyers coming to buy crack. Nobody's there to sell to them. I'll find some crack. I'll set myself up. I'll get rich because I'm a monopolist. Well, yeah. He was the only, only dealer on the street corner. How long did it take to pop him? About an hour. That was five years ago. That market is closed. It's never reopened. They're not arresting crack dealers in the West End of High Point, North Carolina. People are pushing baby strollers on streets that were a war zone. This has now been done in some other places. East Hempstead, Long Island. Now look, these kids weren't choir boys. Not all of them went straight. But some of them did. The crack market wasn't eliminated. You can still get crack in High Point. There are some strip clubs at the edge of town. Not a single lap dancer has complained about the crack dealing. The point was not to eliminate crack use. The point was to return this neighborhood to its residents, and that was done. So again, this is partly about just picking the right objectives about realizing that arrests and incarceration are costs and not benefits, and wanting to get them both down. So what are the principles here? Swiftness, certainty, minimum effective punishment, direct communication, make the threats do the work, and concentration. Do something someplace, not everything, every place. The HOPE program that I talked about, the probation program, it's not specific to drug use. They've used it to enforce probation conditions on domestic violence offenders, on sex offenders. Right? This is just about consistent sanctioning so that you can make the, the, uh, the rules, real rules. And note the principle. When people stop doing it, you can stop punishing them. So the apparent huge resource cost of punishing everybody who violates goes down a lot if they're not violating. The trick is to start small so that you can deliver on the threat at the beginning. Once the threat is credible, you can grow the population you're concentrating on without bankrupting the system. So here's the next step, which I'm hoping 
uh, parole department uh, on the East Coast will be taking over the next couple of months. If you've got a little kid, there are commercial services that now will sell you a GPS tracking unit to go in your kid's backpack. So that if he gets lost, you can basically say, where is he? Or at least, where's the unit? Or there's a different version of it where you can give the system a schedule for the kid. He's supposed to be at school at this hour and at you know, choir practice at this hour and, and whatever else. And you get a text message to your cell phone anytime the kid's not where he's supposed to be. Now, take that unit, put it on a tamper-evident anklet, right, so somebody can't take it off without an alarm going off, and you've got a mobile prison. You've got a prison without walls. Because if you're wearing the GPS unit, it's really hard to get away with a new crime. All we have to do is run the 911 tapes against the location tapes the next morning. And if we want to punish somebody by saying, okay, you stole a car, we're not going to put you in prison, but you're on a 9 p.m. curfew for the next six months, you can do that. Because if he doesn't obey the curfew, you'll know. And you can put him in jail for a couple of days just to remind him. The right? point is not to put him in prison. The point is to keep him law-abiding on the street. Now, I don't know how many of the 1.7 million people who were in America's prisons, as opposed to the 700,000 who were cycling in and out of jail, but if those 1.7 million prisoners, I don't know how many would be willing to wear that anklet. But the ones who did wouldn't be committing many crimes. And would in many ways be a better advertisement not to do crime than the guy who's actually in prison. Because they'd be out partying with their friends and have to go, at nine, go home at 9 p.m. because it's their curfew time. So I think we can do most of the work of a prison cell on most of the people we have in there without paying for anybody's room and board. And, by the way, a certified drug-free employee who will show up at work on time every day is probably pretty damn employable even if he has a felony record. The uh, chief probation officer, federal probation officer in uh, St. Louis basically turned his probation office into a job office. Basically told his probation officers, look, your, your evaluation for this quarter depends on how many of your probationers have jobs. Not are in job training, actually have a job. Right? These are pretty bad looking guys. His probationers have a lower unemployment rate than the city of St. Louis. But it can be done, and having a job is the single best predictor of desistance from crime. So, This is not the only stuff we could do to prevent crime. There's a, a whole different talk to give on the non-criminal justice approaches. I'm not a sympathizer with people who say, well, we have to abolish poverty and racism and improve education in order to re reduce crime, right? That's going to happen on the 12th of never. <laughs> and I doubt, by the way, that it's possible to do anything about concentrated poverty while those neighborhoods are crime, high crime neighborhoods. Who's going to move jobs into those neighborhoods when nobody's safe? Right? The extent to which crime is the cause of poverty, at least a sustaining cause, I think is not not well enough understood. But that's not to say that there aren't important social programs. Nurse home visitation, sending a trained nurse to visit a first-time, poorly educated, young, unwed mother at home, turns out to reduce the crime rate of the kid born by about a quarter. Right? Most cost-effective crime control program ever invented. And if you don't believe me, you can listen to James Hugh Wilson, who's the, the chief conservative thinker about crime, who says the same. Right? So there, there are very specific social programs that we can do that would actually reduce crime without putting people in prison. 
I should note that with Nurse Home Visitation, which a program that had a lot of Republican support, Kit Bond in Missouri was one of the sponsors, when it got folded in to the health reform bill, the Heritage Foundation put out a press release about how President Obama wanted to send federal employees into people's homes to indoctrinate their children. Controlling offenders is a lot easier than controlling public officials. <laughs> um, de-letting also matters. Um, I'm not a big fan of the Levitt paper about abortion and crime. There's a much more convincing paper that suggests that the decision to get lead out of gasoline was a big contributor to the crime decrease. Lead contributes to impulsive behavior. And the amount of lead that was in the environment, the amount, the amount of lead that any urban dweller my age carries, would count as lead poisoning today. Right? We have dramatically changed that. It's probably good for about a third of a deviation, about five IQ points. Every kid today is about five IQ points smarter than he would be um, because of the lead we took out. And it turns out there are very specific impacts of lead on impulsive and violent behavior. Well, there's still, we got the lead out of gasoline. That was a big deal. Still a lot of lead paint around. Still a lot of smelters operating. There's no doubt that taking care of that problem would reduce crime in the medium run at very low cost. So there are a lot, any social program that actually reduces crime measurably is worth doing. But that's not to say that every social program is worth doing. Right? We don't spend that much on criminal justice. We spend about $200 billion a year on the whole criminal justice system. That's about a third of what we spend in elementary and secondary education. So the notion that, well, we should close the prisons and spend the money on schools, well, that's crazy. We couldn't spend enough money on schools to matter. But there are specific programs that, could, that do matter. Um, we do them. So, conclusion. Ten years from now, we can and we should have half as many people in prison in the United States and half as much crime. And we can do that using techniques that we already know are already proven. And all that's in the way is the political will and the public management muscle to make it happen. But can we do it? Yes, we can. Thanks. Good evening, everyone. Uh, we're now passing it to you all for questions and answers. Oh, you talked about drugs a lot. Uh, are you in favor of the uh, decriminalization and legalization of marijuana and cocaine? Drugs are not homogeneous, right? So there's one answer to the cannabis question, there's a different answer to the cocaine question. The crime problem we have relates primarily to the cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine markets, not very much to the cannabis market. We don't have that many cannabis dealers in prison. Now, my own view is that grown-ups who want to smoke weed ought to be allowed to do that. Um, so I'd be perfectly happy to see some system of legal availability. I would not be very happy to see commercial legalization on the alcohol market, for the simple reason that for any drug, some of whom, whose users wind up using too much of it, for any activity, most of the activity is concentrated in a small number of people. That's the reason airlines have frequent flyer programs. Right? For alcohol, 50% of the alcohol consumed in the US is consumed by the people who drink four or more drinks per day average year round. Right? That's the highest 10% of the drinkers. And the next 30% is people who are between two and four. So the people I would consider social drinkers consume 20% of the alcohol in the U.S. So when the booze industries tell you we're in favor of moderate, moderate drinking, they must mean they're planning to go out of business because it's not moderate drinking that keeps them in business. If we had a legal cannabis industry, it would be devoted to creating and sustaining addiction 
just the way the illicit alcohol industry is. So I'm against that. But if you want, want to let people grow their own or form co-ops, you know, I'm for it. But that won't control crime. If you wanted to reduce crime, you'd have to legalize heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine, and you would reduce crime by doing that. But there are, at any one time in the United States, eight times as many people who have a serious drinking problem as there are people who have a serious heroin, cocaine, or methamphetamine problem combined. I don't think that's because alcohol is either more fun or more addictive than those drugs. I think it's because those drugs are illegal and alcohol is on the Super Bowl. So from a pure crime control perspective, yes, I legalize everything in sight. From a terrorism control perspective, I'd certainly legalize everything in sight. From a public health perspective, I think we ought to learn how to do the drug war intelligently, but not give ourselves a cocaine problem as big as our alcohol problem. So not, not the world's most satisfactory answer. That was my last book. Uh, Todd Kerner, I have what uh, may seem like a very simple question, but I'm curious what your opinion is of the purpose of the prison system in America. Is it to punish criminals? Is it to rehabilitate criminals? Is it to house the mentally ill? Any of those. And what should it be if it's not? Okay. Um, I mean, I have no way of answering the question what the purpose is. You know, I'd have to be a social psychologist or something. Um, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the thing that sustains the prison system is rage and fear, right? I mean, the prison system is built in response to our fear about crime. Um, what should the prisons do? Now, that's, that's a question that as a policy analyst I think I can answer. The prison should hold three kinds of people. People who have done something, something so appalling you have to put them in prison just to remind everybody that that's a really bad thing to do, even if they're not likely to do it again. Right? Eichmann, Bernie Madoff, Roman Polanski. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, right, so that's a category, right? Just the guy's done something so appalling, you've got to say that that's not okay, and nothing says it like a prison cell. Second group, people who habitually do so much and so bad stuff that you just don't dare let them out. Right? The, the high-rate, frequent, violent offender. Now, the good news is nobody's that for very long. Right? The, the, the age structure of crime and the age structure of professional basketball are pretty comparable. <laughs> um, you've got a, got a 35-year-old in prison, you're probably wasting your time. Right? So, a limited number of people who simply will not stop. And finally the people who you put the anklet on them and they take it off and run away. Right? They, they just decided that they don't want to play by the rules. Right? They're a candidate for prison cell. Um, as far as I'm concerned, everybody else gets a timeout. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite effective. My, my favorite story here is, 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 again, from David Kennedy. He was involved in a program called Ceasefire in Boston where they really shut down youth gun violence by going to the gangs as groups and basically saying, look, anybody in your gang shoots somebody, we'll land on all of you. And that turned out to work fine because it got the gang leadership to come down on the hotshots. But one of the guys they nailed, they didn't want to threaten him. They wanted to put him away. He'd killed a couple of people. Um, and he had some, a couple of violent convictions, though not for homicide. And he liked to walk down the street, flipping a bullet in the air and catching it, flipping it in the air and catching it, just to show how tough he was. Now, there are two things this guy didn't know that he needed to know. One was that two violent felony convictions made him an armed career criminal under the federal armed career criminal statute. 
which in turn meant that if he was caught with a firearm, he was good for a 15-year mandatory minimum prison term. The second thing he didn't know was that under the Armed Career Criminal Statute, a bullet counts as a firearm. So he got popped for his bullet. He is arraigned in federal district court. The judge is, you know, telling him what his exposure is, right? 15-year mandatory, no parole. And he's given her the stone face. You can't scare me. Then she goes on to say, okay, I'm releasing you on your own recognizance, right? But you've got to show up for trial. And I'm putting you on a 9 p.m. curfew. And the guy goes ballistic. You can't do that to me. I got places to be tonight. So 15 years in prison, not a problem. 9 p.m. tonight, a problem. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a serious believer that these timeouts will work. That's not what Om calls them. It's what I call them. Will work just fine. Um, in particular for juveniles, right? The problem with juveniles, I haven't talked about juvenile justice at all tonight. The problem with juveniles is there's not very much you can do to them that they don't like, right? So they won't want to do whatever that was again, that you're actually willing to do them because you don't want to knock them off their course, right? Two-thirds of kids who get adjudicated delinquent by reason of something that as an adult we'd call a felony, two-thirds of those people never have an adult arrest, right? Most bad kids go straight. So you don't want to do anything in the juvenile justice system to prevent that. So here's my proposal. Right? A kid steals a car. Um, Friday afternoon at 6 o'clock, uh, take him to an abandoned motel, put him in a room with the television taken out, obviously, so all that's left is a Bible, a Quran, a Dhammapada, and the AA Big Book, um, and three days' worth of meals ready to eat, and tell him you'll see him Monday morning in time for school. Now, that's not cruel and unusual, right? He's not going to go crazy in 40, 60 hours of solitary confinement. But boy, he's not going to like it. And it's not even interesting enough to brag about. <laughs> I predict he will not want to be there again. And if he does, then you put him there again. And I think very few are going to want a third repetition. So I think we can actually get control of kids without wrecking their lives, which is the goal. Hi, my name is Damian Carroll. Uh, I read the book. It's terrific. I wish every uh, public official in America would read it. I was particularly interested in the section on gun control. Uh, I work for a state assembly member, and one of the bills uh, that we passed last year requires micro-stamping in firearms in uh, the United States, or in um, California, rather, starting in 2012. I noticed that the book didn't mention, and I was wondering if you're familiar with the technology and its ramifications for crime control. Okay. So this is about the idea that, I mean, right now, if, if you recover a bullet from a crime scene, you could match it with a bullet from another crime scene and say, yes, this was fired from the same gun. Or if you've got the gun, you can fire the gun and then compare the, bu the bullet you just fired for the bullet from the, from the crime scene. You know, this is, not, this is not as good science as the expert witnesses want to make it out, but it's pretty good. And uh, under the Clinton administration, my friend Susan Ginsburg put together a national program of crime gun tracing. You take a gun that was used in a crime and you run it back through the system and find out which dealer sold it. And it turns out a limited number of dealers sell most of the crime guns. So then you can think about you know, what they're doing. Um, so this technology you're talking about is the next step. The question is, can you arrange to fire the gun before it's sold 
and keep a record of that bullet and shell casing, and in this case, redesign the gun so it puts a little stamp on every bullet it fires. Right? Basically, I think this is done through the, the hammer mechanism, right? Right. Um, lots of debate, which I'm not technically competent to referee, on how, long, how many times you'll have to fire that gun before the micro stamp no longer works. Um, but yeah, I'm for it. I, I don't think we should expect to get a big impact on crime, but we'll catch some bad guys. Andrew Lickman, I'm curious, you did mention gangs just uh, a few moments ago. Do you have anything else uh, wise to tell us about gangs and how to deal with them in a similarly uh, intellectual manner as these other problems you're right. solving? All right, so I'm, I am by no means a gang expert, so this, this, what I'm going to tell you is, is secondhand David Kennedy. So the first, thing, the first answer what to do about gangs is call in Kennedy. Um, uh, but basically, the, the, the thrust of the idea is that gangs aren't the issue. Conduct is the issue. Right? LAPD says there are 80,000 active gang members in LA County. There were 500 homicides last year. So if there are really 50,000 or 80,000 or whatever number of active gang members, they must not be very active, or at least they must not be very deadly. There's a limited number of people who are a, prob or a problem. Um, and what the Boston Project did was basically identify the groups and threaten them as groups, not with harassment, but with concentrated enforcement attention if anybody in their group shot somebody. Now, those were relatively small, relatively young groups, whether it'd work with the kind of organizations we have now in, in LA, open question. But again, the goal is not to destroy the social structure of the group. The goal is to get the gunfire down. Uh, and I think that's, that's feasible. And, and LAPD is doing it. I mean, I've got to say, um, when, when Bill Bratton put uh, Charlie Beck into the South Quadrant. Um, he basically tore up the LAPD playbook about gangs. I mean, and he's a, had, had a long enough history of the department, his father was an inspector, I think, that he could get away with it. Now, LAPD has always had contempt for the gang, the gang workers, the, the street workers, who actually know the gang members. And as far as LAPD is concerned, and, and they're not much different from the gang members either. So. But what Beck did was he said, well, wait a minute. We probably can't solve the last homicide because there's never a witness to a gang killing. What we can do is prevent the next homicide. We ought to be able to, to know enough about the social structure to know who's feuding with whom and where the retaliation killing is going to happen and go there and stop it. And the answer is, yeah, it's feasible. So, so the, the focus on crime as an outcome rather than arrests, which Bratton brought here from his experience in New York, that's the key because, again, if you treat arrests and convictions and incarcerations as the goal rather than as the mean to the end, means to your end, you're going to get completely confused. John McKenna, uh, we're spending approximately $115 million a year in California processing death sentences. And since 1976, the figure is $250 million per execution. I was just wondering if there's any research or if the book addresses uh, alternatives to death sentencing. Well, I don't, I don't talk about the, the death penalty in the book. It's, I mean, what I'll tell you about the death penalty is it's one of those issues that has no importance in terms of controlling crime. So I'm actually, you know, as a sort of, as a moral philosopher, I actually have no objection to the death penalty. I think, I think it's, there's a problem with punishing, you know, a multiple homicide with simply a longer version of the way we public punish an auto theft. Um, but that's my sort of moral philosophy opinion. Whenever I hear a politician talking about the death penalty, I vote for the other guy. 
Because <laughs> he's trying to convince you that he's got a solution to crime, which he doesn't have. Right? Um, the, the fashionable alternative to the death penalty is life in prison without parole. Well, I'm not sure I like that. I'm not sure that the, the suffering over a lifetime is really greater from an execution than from being in, life in, life, in prison for life without parole. You know what? When that guy's 60, we're not really very mad at him anymore. And he's very expensive to maintain. Um, so, um, I think we have to admit that we're going to let those guys out and some of them are going to do it again. Um, but there are a few sort of what I think of as the obscene issues in the criminal justice system that I try to duck as much as I can because they're just a, a, a distraction. I mean, I finally figured out why my death penalty abolitionist friends are so intent on that. When I was in school, we, we learned about the conquistadors. And the, the sort of subtext was, you know, yeah, they were cruel and they did some bad stuff and so on, but, you know, the Aztecs practiced human sacrifice. Right? So it wasn't so bad that somebody came in and stopped them from doing that. And then a few years later, I was reading about the Inquisition in the New World. And I realized, wait, wait, wait a minute. The conquistadors practiced human sacrifice. It's called an auto de fe, except they used fire instead of you know, the volcano. All right, so... I, and then at some point it, it occurred to me that what my death penalty abolitionist friends see in the death penalty is human sacrifice. And so, yeah, I understand why they object to that. Um, but again, it's... It's a very interesting issue, but it has nothing to do with crime control. Uh, so my solution is let's get crime down. And then, I mean, it's clear from the polling data that people, people's support for the death penalty goes up as their fear of crime goes up. If we get the, death, get the crime rate down to 1960 levels, we'd, we'd abolish the death penalty by, by majority vote. Uh, thank you. Uh, Neil Tadkin. Uh, I'm wondering if you can speak to uh, the integration of restorative justice models into the, the smart and effective punishment and how, how you see those starting to work together? Restorative justice is not something I've looked at. Um, my impression is it's really good for kids who break windows um, and really not much use for like serious stuff. Um, I'm very skeptical. All right, so, sorry, the notion of restorative justice is to confront the offender with his own victim. Right. Here's the person whose house you graffitied. Right. Here's the person whose daughter you murdered. Right. Now how do you feel? And it's in fact false what the newspapers say. Right. These are not conscienceless monster zombies wandering around. These are people who have been in a particular social circumstance and have a particular individual constitution that's led them to do something terrible. But crime is something they do not, for most people, who they are. And yes, they do have consciences, and confronting somebody with a victim is a good way to awaken that conscience. So restorative justice has been used in lots of the, of the countries that are coming out of periods of tyranny, in Eastern Europe, in South Africa, in South America. Uh, there have been attempts to apply it here, um, particularly to juvenile offending. Um, you know, I guess some of them have been pretty successful. Um, I don't see any evidence that it can be done at a scale or with respect to a seriousness of crime that would make it a serious player in crime control. But I could well be wrong about that. Um, thanks to all of you again for coming out. Um, let, let me make one request. Not, not so much that you buy the book, um, but if you read it and you like it, 
put a review on one of the bookseller websites on you know, Amazon.com or, or Barnes & Noble. Actually, that, turn, that that stuff turns out to matter. Um, uh, and the book's in early days. And the other thing is, if you like it, write an elected official. Right? I mean, we've, we've had crime. Uh, I'm grateful that crime is off the national political agenda. Because almost always when politicians talk about crime, they talk nonsense. Um, but it's a little frustrating, given the level of progress that's been made at a professional level in learning how to have less crime and less punishment. It's a frustration that the most of the national political leadership simply seems to be unaware of it. And so some, some citizen pressure for common sense crime control could make a big difference. Anyway, thanks for coming out. Have a good evening.